So welcome back to The Mystic. I'm Dr. Scott Morris with Church Health, and I am here once again with uh, Joy Marseille, Rabbi Micah Greenstein, Kirk Qualam, and leading us today, Joshua Narcissa, to, uh, to talk about how we have uh, lived through this last year. So we're glad you're with us. And Kirk, take it away. The Mystic is not a church service or a temple service, but it is a spiritual experience through conversation. These conversations can certainly be healing, but it's not just about feeling better. It's about getting better at feeling. We hope to further explore our own inner worlds as we expand our thoughts about our outer world, and we invite you to join us as we go into The Mystic. Again, welcome to the mystic. Today we are talking about a year in retrospect. The events of this pandemic and its affiliate crises of race, religion, nationalism, and economic precarity have been dizzying. It's almost hard to believe that it was nearly one year ago that the first safer at home orders were put into effect and that now a year later, some 500,000 Americans are dead, and of them, nearly 11,500 are Tennesseans. There's much for us to consider. Today, we're going to try to take a deep dive, bridging together everything we've been talking about over the past three months. And if you're listening now, this is a good time to let you know if you want to hear those past discussions, we will soon be available on all major podcast streaming platforms, including Spotify and Apple. But over the past three months, we've talked about human sexuality, race and racism, 
and faith's intersection with each of these topics. Today, we bring them together to try to make sense of what we've learned one year into this pandemic, about the world we live in, and what we've learned about ourselves. Now, fair warning, I'm throwing a big question on the table to begin our first half, but it's intentionally big because I want us to turn this question around among ourselves and wrestle out a few honest responses. So here we go. What have we learned about one another? The way our country is structured, what have we learned about the nature of power after a year of living through COVID? And Micah, I'd love for you to tackle this question first. My brother, you're always picking on the rabbi. <laughs> I thought the rabbi always had the answer. That's why. Uh, I don't. Just more questions. That's, you know, how a Jew answers a question with another question. question. Uh, I guess, Joshua, I, I would say I, I've learned a hopeful lesson and, and two sobering um, lessons. Uh, the hopeful lesson has been the resilience of... Um, teachers, doctors, students, um, a nation which came close to losing its democratic foundation in the face of an authoritarian, um, still ranting about an election lost by seven, and yet our country is resilient. So, so that's one thing I learned, the teachers who, and students, are, the, the sobering lessons one is existential and the other is very uh, real. The existential lesson that's ongoing that I worry about is that we become accustomed to fear. Mm. Like we, we always were uh, afraid as we should have been and st should still be by a pandemic. But I just worry um, that it's going to take time for us to regain human connectivity. And I don't think it's going to be like a, a, a light switching on, even though here across town, you know, church health is helping with the vaccines. Um, and the final sobering lesson, just to get to your thoughtful introduction, um, has been that the inequality that we all heard about and knew about, it's in our faces right now with college students here in Memphis um, not having even Wi-Fi equity <laughs> in the same classroom at the University of Memphis because of race and socioeconomic disparities. So the chasm between the poor and the privileged only widened, even with a virus that knows no racial, economic, or geographic boundaries. So that's some of what I learned. It's interesting you, you talked about that fear, right? That that deeper commitment to fear within ourselves and a lack of, or really the, the struggle of getting back to a place of human connectivity. Um, it takes me back to, I think one of the first times I joined the Mystic, Joy and I did the discussion about intergenerational intergenerationism. Um, and... As a millennial, we, we spoke about our distrust of institutions. Um, I think one thing that has come out of a year in COVID is having a dogged commitment that 
we can't go back to the system as it was, that it was wholly inadequate before the pandemic Mm -hmm. and a desire to go back to a system that drives bodies for production that fails to leave space for human vulnerability and connection and sometimes just a chance to take a deep breath and not feel bad about not doing that kind of system can't come back and be endorsed and be blessed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be some way that we center human connection as the foundation for how we move forward. Um, but Scott, what would you say about that question? Well, look, I, I'm get obsessed over this issue of fear. I mean, I, I you would have hoped that this last year could have been an opportunity for us to you know, have some deep thinking in our own lives about it, but in Instead, it just feels like we've entrenched whatever those fears were. Um, you know, strictly from a Christian perspective, I, I have felt, you know, for, forever that, that the most powerful theme of the New Testament is fear not. Um, but we don't seem to be able to hear that message. Yeah. Instead, we've just institutionalized that the same fears we had before. Um, and however we were a year ago for, for too many of our, our cliques, our, our small groups, you know, th- those issues are just even more deeply entrenched mm-hmm. into who we are. And we, we just have to move beyond that. You know, I, I think our, our faith communities need to step up and, and lead us out, out of this to ultimately realize that, you know, God's view of the world is so much bigger than than my little group, um, and this we need each other in such powerful ways. And yet, it's in some ways disappointing we haven't gotten there. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. Wonder um, uh, where have you seen some hope around where, what the faith community can do? Um, hope that that's possible after this pandemic. Well, I, look. I think the faith community has actually done a pretty good job of stepping up and and saying uh, these issues of uh, caring for our bodies uh, matter as much as caring for our spirits, yeah. um, and that you know that is not a um, dogmatic issue. It's not about believing the right things and we will all be safe. Um, that we have to practice behaviors that uh, even though we may not understand it intellectually, that if we can act in a way that is consistent Mm -hmm. and um, uh, reflective of our our love and care for each other, even if we don't dogmatically think the same, I I think the faith community has shown us that that is a better way. Um, But then I I also see churches out there just even more in, in indoctrinated, and it has to be this very way, and just a lot of work still to be done. Hey, Scott. Yeah. I'm before Joy Kirk and Joshua make us feel better. I know <laughs> we're, we're in a safe place. I, yeah. I just got to get this out because of our host's right. comment. You know, looking back this year, our interdependence as a society could have been a greater outcome of this past year. Right. Mm. Yeah. Beyond ministers like you and the others here preaching it or places like Crosstown Concourse modeling it, isn't that downright depressing? I mean, to me, just to be, make me feel better, 
<laughs> because you would think with a virus that knows no bounds, our interdependence would increase. And I agree that ministers have done a good job and Crosstown does a good job, but come on, like, is our interdependence really felt more among millennials than ever before and as a society or forget age? Look, I mean, we're talking at a time where um, all these terrible things that happened around wasting uh, vaccines and all, but the response of our community was to attack a public health official who has given her entire career and life to try to make us all healthier and safer. And there were just things beyond her ability. And it breaks my heart that we have turned her into some, you know, a force that was like, I don't know, she was intentionally trying to harm us, really? I mean, that is not the case. And, um, you know, I just, I don't understand how we couldn't have rallied around as a community saying that we are in this together. This has been incredibly difficult, but it's almost like everything that has been wrong over the last year got funneled in the last week on Dr. Householder, as though she was responsible for every bad thing that happened in Shelby County in the last year. I mean, how, how could we do things like that to somebody who is such a kind and generous person who's actually not from Memphis, who is doing this out of the, the love of her profession? I think it speaks to the fact that we have very poor means of being able to talk about not only where it hurts as a society, but also to talk about through those fears, right? We haven't held space, I don't think much space during the pandemic to talk about these are the ways in which I am hurting as a person, as a family, as an organization. These are the fears I have around being able to have my needs met. We've, I think, also given into a mindset of scarcity when we know that resources are tight. We, we know that um, vaccines are still rolling off the production line, right? But we also know that we have been incredibly generous to one another during this pandemic. And I think we're caught up in that narrative that there's not enough, that someone is out, that someone is out to get us, that something is wrong. And we've lived into that fear. Um, Joy, I want to come to you with all of that on the table to hear what's on your mind. Well, uh, Kirk, you may have something more hopeful than I will. <laughs> <laughs> you can sort it out for us. Because <laughs> the hope My hopes are on you. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be super hopeful or inspiring in that way. It's interesting. I like that you mentioned Joshua, our previous, like our first, Joshua and I's first conversation on the mystic, uh, where we talked about generational differences. And I... When I was thinking about this prompt, I was thinking, I just, and almost astonished at the level of disparity in thought around not just COVID, not just racism, not just like white supremacy, not just all those things, but around all of it, that there's not, um, it's not really an issue that there's not one reality that everyone's living. I don't, I don't think that's practical, but um to see even the example you used that that uh Scott that there was there's such a, a visceral response from folks um based out of fear based out of um 
scarcity and and I mean the reality is we're all in survival mode in some way, mm-hmm. right? Psychologically, maybe not physically for everyone, um, but psychologically we're all in survival mode. And so when you're in survival mode, I mean, you know, you uh, flight, fight, freeze, or I've heard there's one more now, fawn, I think. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, you're going to do one of those. And so in that case, fight, right? Um, you know, toilet paper arguments and stuff <laughs> early in, you know, when March and uh, in April of last year, uh, you know, this fight response, um, other folks just flee, flee, flee from the very thought about it, you know, that weren't, it's like, it's not going to be that bad or I'm not going to have to deal with it or um, literally fled the country, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever that looked like. I think there's just... We're in survival mode, and so all of these different kind of reactions, I think, are to be expected. And what is, I don't know if troubling is the right word, but uh, what has become obvious is that America is not built um, to sustain people experiencing trauma, Mm -hmm. despite being a major producer of trauma. And so because of that, like, there's not a lot of space for... Uh, this past week was a great example. We had inclement weather in Memphis. Memphis was pretty much shut down with the snow. Um, and I got an email that said, hey, we have inclement weather, so please nobody come into the office. You can either take you know, take a day on your own, um, take the day off, you won't get paid for it, or you can take PTO um, and work from home. And my initial thought was that if this was not a pandemic, mm. everyone would just have off today. <laughs> Because it's inclement weather and we can't come into the office. And so it's just interesting that we've all adapted these new ways of doing the same stuff that we've always done. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not as hopeful that I, I do hear people saying that, like, we can't go back to normal. We can't go back to what we've all experienced. Um, but then I see us shifting in ways yeah. to make sure that this is still normal, right? That there's no expectation of the reality of, you know, taking care of children at home while you're also working and how that would affect a 40-hour work week. I mean, to expect a 40-hour work week from everyone right now is a little bit irrational, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, it, because it completely dismantles and dismisses the fact that this is a traumatic experience that we are all going through um, and that requires some bereavement it requires some adjustment it requires some something different than just wearing a mask (laughs) um and so i'm interested to see what will happen in the years to come i mean two years from now for sure five years from now ten years from now because the reality is that this year past couple of years but especially this year that we've lived through is historic not just because of covid but because something is happening in this country and tides are shifting and it is very unclear where it will shift to (laughs) and I think that that's kind of the I don't know that's my summary of that I do have my own thoughts around how this past year has affected me but I don't want to take up too much time I think we're going to get I think we're going to get to that question uh next half but Kirk um do you have the hope for us (laughs) well that would be a no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping that the listener can can take um, the aggregate um, intentionality of our of our comments 
and and sort of put it in the blender and make some hope out of it. But <laughs> here goes here goes another. I guess you could think of it like, you know, garlic alone is pretty pretty hard to take, you know. Mm-hmm. But garlic mixed in with some other stuff, hopefully, you know, it's something that is really good. And here's a little garlic. Um, you know, the suspicion factor for me is what has has really been magnified by this pandemic suspicion mm. like you know we we go about our day i think in our most positive moment our most optimistic moment saying like well i'm open to anyone i'm open to anything and i'll you know but maybe deep inside or maybe not so deep there's the, there are suspicions of other people and again and we put you know we add the race element to that which again you know you wake up black in the morning you have woken black <laughs> you know it's just not a way to not be that and so everything gets filtered through that and so you know the suspicion of white folks and throughout this thing has just been i think you hit on it a little bit micah you know when we had the insurrection it just blew all of those things back up again right in our faces the way dang i was just getting to a point where i think i was about to be a a really good team player. And I think, you know, finally that I think the masks have not made that better. Like there's this um, existential, you know, gauntlet between you and me and it's it's called a mask. Mm. And it seems like that mask is just, you know, I, I just feel like that, that, that makes the suspicion factor worse instead Mm. of better. I think of um, the poem, I Wear the Mask, right? That there's always this layer, this covering that is between me and the world. And COVID and its attendant fears and, I don't know, the things that have, that literally, that keep us up at night have been a mask that have kept us from seeing one another, that have gotten in the way of that human connectivity. Um, Kirk, I hope that you can soothe a bit of what we've been talking about this first half. Where, where words fail, <clears throat> where words fail, music tends to come in uh, with with uh, some, if not some answers, at least some balm. You've taught me that music always brings hope, so uh, bring us a little hope. Yes, indeed. Allow me to welcome, for those of you who are not here, to see it. Um, we have a special guest with us. His name is Dr. Ashley Davis. And uh, he's just a friend uh, to most of us in this room already, but uh, he's been more than a friend to me. So uh, let's see what we can deliver in the way of hope. dismayed whatever be tight God will take care of you beneath him 
No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one upon his breast, God will take care of you, oh God will take care of you, Hey, that gives me hope. Yeah, that was <laughs> I said there was no hope here. I think we found that hope. Um, by the way, you are listening to The Mystic here at Crosstown Concourse with the incomparable Kirk Whalem, uh, Scott Morris, Rabbi Maka Greenstein, and Joy Marseille. We are continuing our discussion. And during that first half, we posed a big, almost too big question and answered it to the best of our abilities um, of the major lessons that we learned, everything from the, our commitment now to fear coming out of this 
pandemic and our lack of a desire for human connection and our structure of our country that, Joy, as you so beautifully put it, is not made to deal with the people in trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, now I want to put each of you in the hot seat with a few questions that I've thought of. Um, and I want to start with you, Joy, um, because we found the hope in Kirk's song, and I'd love to hear where you are finding hope for yourself um, and for Memphis. Um. I think uh, this year has been surprisingly good personally. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One of my best years, if I'm being honest. And so uh, it's not hard for me to find hope um, personally. Um, Strangely, um, I feel a little bit like individually, but also as a country, but I feel like individually I'm a little bit at the bottom of a deep chasm on the bottom floor and looking up at the sky like through a small um, circle of light. Um, And that is, of course, very isolating um, and very difficult. But I'm finding strange hope in that. Um, Maybe it's that I can feel the floor beneath me. Uh, Maybe the sun is so bright. Um, But as a entire society and, and things for me, the way that hits um, strangely gives me hope to be kind of at the bottom floor. Um, personally, I'm just very excited for my life and the way it's going. <laughs> um, it's going well, um, but just on a on a, I'm I'm not uh, so excited by my own uh, triumphs that um, I'm forgetting how destitute it is around me. Um, and I would say, including in Memphis, uh, I think one of the great hopes that I see coming into and going to spread out of Memphis is um, that, you know, that grind that that just very like we are going to survive mentality that is so prevalent in Memphis um, is being met also with innovation and with um, new experience and with new thought processes, uh, some of which that are coming from outside and coming into Memphis, um, some of which are just um, getting, you know, finding their feet and finding their wings to be able to be bold and uh, expressive about the things that we see in our city that need changing. And so the people, um, specifically young people, but the people in Memphis are really um, where I can find the most hope that there's not um, the desperation that I feel when I, you know, zoom out a little bit to the rest of the country, um, it just doesn't feel quite the same um, as the desperation I feel specific to Memphis. The desperation is hard, but I just, there's there's something about Memphians and Memphis um, as a city that I think um, perseveres. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope there, I think. Thank you. Um, Memphis perseverance makes me think of Memphis soul, which leads me to Kirk Whalum, <laughs> almost naturally. I'm wondering, um, especially as you have been grounded in Memphis off of the itineracy of, of your musical genius, what new connections has this pandemic drawn for you between your music and the impact it has on the world? What new connections? That's an excellent question. Um, I'll start 
to piggyback a little off of Joy to say that in my personal space, uh, I have seen the serendipity of uh, of connecting points uh, in, in, again in um, uh, in, in first we say malgré, which means uh, in spite of mm-hmm. uh, the overall, you know, the meta narrative. Um, I ended up with three kids uh, and three grandkids at the house, you know, uh, for a good portion, the majority so far of the of the pandemic. They're not there now, uh, now just intermittently, but they were living with us. And so I found the connecting points between my kids and me and, and my wife um, to be um, so instructive, really, really hard, right? Because it was stretching our boundaries, especially, you know, I mean, I'm so happy to see Joy at the front end of this this whole process of, you know, this little piece of your heart, you know, dropped a little bit, you know, to, <laughs> to the, the womb, as it were. And now when that little piece of your heart gets out of you, you're able for those first that first season to sort of be there and like you to have some agency, you determine when this little person is going to eat and when they're going to whatever. But the older they get, you get you get to experience that other part where they're not under your control, as it were. And so then fast forward, they come back, they're at the house, and these adults, you're, you're living life with these adults who came from you. Mm-hmm. And it is a very special kind of a uh, blessing and a mm-hmm. very special kind of a trial. And it has been instructive. I've been on a, a Richard Rohr group with Scott Morris and, and a lot of other really great friends. Um, and I've leaned on that teaching uh, from Richard Rohr and on that group, in particular those people, to help me navigate, um, you know, to, to, to identify the blessings in those connections mm-hmm. and to deal with the stresses, yeah. uh, the, the, new, the new stresses, of, I guess, of these new connections, you know. Yeah. Um, before I, I'm, I'm coming to you, Mike, but before I get there, I want to just kind of throw one more question on the table for both of you around what you've learned about the power of art Mm-hmm. And its effect on the human soul during this pandemic. Well, well, let me let me say quickly that that song "God Will Take Care of You" yeah. and that is an excellent Man. example of how that song hovers above the space where we operate, where we can identify this is good, this is bad, this is bad. this is what I can control. This is out of my hands. This is awful. This is great. The, the stuff that, you know, that we kind of go on, our, our, our wiring, right? All of a sudden, then here comes this art in the form of, of a gospel message and a God message that says, I, I hear you, I feel you, but it's going to be okay. Like God, who is that, first of all? <laughs> And that's part of why we're here in the mystic is because none of us are prepared to to define that. None yeah. of us are prepared to answer that question in such a way that class over. But what we can all say is, you know what? Somebody's watching over us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything we're going to add? Yeah. Uh, I think art has sustained a lot of folks during this time. Like, I, I can't speak to everyone's experience, but I know for me, uh, March 2020, um, I was 
working in an arts organization, which I still am, um, and rarely touching a pencil or a pen or a paintbrush um, for myself. And in the past year, our house is filled up with art <laughs> um, of things I've painted, um, words my husband's written, um, words he's written that I've painted. <laughs> um, uh, and I think that this is, I think it's a testament for a lot of different, fo- you know, creativity and art can look lots of different ways, right? It can look like music or baking even, um, painting, all of that. Um, and, and what I've noticed is that a lot of folks who um, are in a particular position where they're able to spend extra time, right? Um, but in that extra time, a lot of folks have been practicing art or consuming art. Um, I mean, whether it's film, documentary, I mean, there's just so much um, that can be consumed um, in this digital age we live in. And so uh, another great example is, uh, and I would consider this art, is um, with what happened in Houston and and also, I mean, what happened in Memphis and lots of different cities that were overwhelmed by the um, the weather changes the past couple of weeks. Uh, from that, I've also found hilarity. I mean, absolute <laughs> comic sure. genius coming out of moments of absolute desperation no. um, on TikTok and on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok, but I see them on Instagram, <laughs> um, on Facebook, but even just like people writing articles that are really d- delightful. Um, I think there's a lot of really dope creativity um, and like, and humor has been the biggest one for me that I've seen that has been almost an overwhelming amount. I think in different seasons in the country, you know, you get, you know, themes in music, you get themes in art, you get themes in literature. And one of the themes I think in the past year or two has been humor. Like mm-hmm. folks want to laugh I guess <laughs> and we're doing the best to do it. Laughter <laughs> as a medicine. Yeah, laughter is medicine. Laughter mm-hmm. is good for the soul, uh, which is why my question for you, Micah, is what have you learned mm-hmm. from one faith leader to another about shepherding people of faith in the middle of a pandemic? I love going third. Thank you for letting <laughs> me go after <laughs> Joanne Kirk, because I, I have to say that that song you and Dr. Ashley offered, that wasn't a bomb. Um, that was just beautiful. Yeah. And while I haven't seen your artwork or your, your husband's poetry, um, I did have my 26-year-old son live with us for three months. Now, we don't have a basement, but it's like the image of, you know, your kid <laughs> in almost 30 years old. That'll never happen again in my lifetime. So yeah. be careful what you say. Uh, the, the Greensteins are still healthy, so I'm all right. Yeah. But as we enter this month of March, which is Passover and, and Easter right after uh, in early April... Uh, Something you just said, Kirk, just hit me between the eyes. Passover is all about freedom from slavery. But the amazing thing in the book of Exodus isn't slavery because there's still people enslaved. It's that God, or however you imagine the creator, hears you, heard the groaning, and and, and is with you through it all, through all the fear, and... This is what gives me hope for Memphis in a way, mm. Joy, you know, because we're what we call a second-tier city. People are leaving New York. 3.2 billion people are working remotely now. I'm really hopeful for the city. Um, I'm sad for the de-urbanization of, of, of the larger cities. 
But I think there really could be a benefit to Memphis in the year ahead. Uh, there's nothing fair about this ongoing pandemic. And another thing is you can get a vaccine here. And, you know, I come to this session, I'll stop with this, just still shell-shocked as the vaccines have been rolling out and now we have a third vaccine. My childhood doctor who got me marathon running, mm -hmm. president of my childhood temple, has a 40-ish-year-old daughter among four. They're in Florida. She died last week of COVID, mm -hmm. veterinarian. You know, someone in their 40s. Now, you know, as ministers, we've buried people in their 80s and 90s, and it's all because she couldn't get a shot down in Florida. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not saying that to change the mood, but just that in Memphis, you can. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is luck. There's nothing fair about this, but I do think we're blessed for all our problems coming out of the pandemic because there is a sense of community in Memphis, unlike any other city. Mm -hmm our size. So that, that does give me hope, even as I cry for, for those who don't have that access in Memphis too, doctor. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'd love for you to talk a bit about that, especially, um, just talk about the challenges or the things that have made you most uncomfortable as you've led church health this past year, um, in the midst of this pandemic and everything that's happened. Yeah, I mean, it's been hard. <laughs> you know, there's just no question about it. And, um, you know, I think, you know, a, a year ago, uh, you know, I said not, not, I mean, it was just the writing was on the wall that this was going to be an unbelievable exercise in inequity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was crystal clear to me that who was going to get sick was going to be poor people, who was going to die was going to be poor people. Um, and it sort of played itself out in yeah. that regard. Mm -hmm. Um now, you know, I, I've been incredibly... Uh, hey, Scott, I'm sorry, but it's true that if you get a shot, you're not going to die, right? That's why I brought it up. Like, if yeah. you get a shot, you're not going to die. Right. I mean, it, uh, I mean, the J&J &J <laughs> is arguing that it's 100% chance that if you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you will not die from COVID with the new J&J &J vaccine. I mean, those are pretty good odds, yeah. right? I mean, uh, the Moderna and... Um, Pfizer vaccines, I think, are equally good. So it, so it comes down to who gets the shot, right? And, and how do we um, uh, find a way to equitably distribute it? And it's not just, you know, convincing people to put their arm out there. It, it has all this stuff that's happened in the past mm -hmm. that has generated, uh, you know, inequity in, in America is what has brought itself to the forefront um, anywhere from where the vaccine can literally be distributed to how complicated it is to sign up um, to how we deal with people's fears about it. Um, yeah, that this is why we live in a complicated world and all. But, um, but again, back so from the church health perspective, I, I am incredibly proud of our staff, of how we have worked our way through this over this last year, um, how how we have dealt with both testing and now uh, distributing the vaccine, ma making sure that it is as equitable as possible, and you know where I think we make the biggest um, uh, contribution here in Memphis is to the Latino community. 
Um, you know, this a couple of weeks ago, the percentage of Latinas who had been vaccinated was 0.4%. Mm. 0.4, that's small, right? And uh, it's just how hard it is to deal with two languages, with people's fears and, and all these ways. But anyway, I do feel hope about this because I think as a community, we want to get it right. We just let things like when things go wrong and, and the vaccines expire and all, we just have to find a scapegoat and we have mm, to point our mm. finger and we have to say, you caused this. And all of those fears over the last year can, can just be uh, summoned from the belly of the beast so quickly. And, mm. and that's what we have to fight against. You know, I think this whole point of the mystic and what we're, we try to do here is to try to come up with a way to dispel the power of what, what that is within in all of us. You know, we, the, if we have to be honest with ourselves, we all have those feelings at some point. We all want to go, you know, fight the good fight. And, you know, nobody can be more righteously indignant than me at times. But and I, and I'm I still actually believe there's times to be righteously indignant. But um, but the reality is is that we are all in this together, and God loves every last one. I got a I got a comment quickly to say that what you brought out, you know, what the, the stage that Joshua set, you know, by bringing up fear, and what you brought out about, um, you know, us needing to have uh, a scapegoat. Like a moment of confession, um, like though it, it has been so very, very easy to identify throughout all the various colors of, you know, of what has happened, to identify a scapegoat for why things are going bad. For me, that was our ex-president. And now I'm having to kind of go, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, he's, he's not a good person, <laughs> you know. And he is responsible for a lot, but he is not responsible for everything. And neither does it do any good for me as an individual, I'm just speaking for Kirk Whalen, to 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 have any more energy go out of me dealing with him as, you know, okay, he's 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 the he was the bad guy. He's the scapegoat, you know. No, it's it's more complicated than that. It is. Um I want to close out our session before we get to our meditation by um, talking about the one major change that happened in my life in this past year. Um, and it's significant, if only because I was, uh, uh, I don't know, kidnapped isn't the word. I was fooled into it. Uh, my fiance really wanted us to get some plants and <laughs> I was wholly against it. Um, it's, it's an interesting way how we got our first one. The first plant we got in our apartment was from the church when my father passed at like literally the top of this pandemic. And since mm -hmm. then, we have added about six more, I think. Yeah. And the one thing I've learned about plants is that you have very little control over them. They are dramatic. I have killed about two, if not three orchids at this point. Um, I have other plants that we don't water that continue to grow. But what they all require is attention. Mm -hmm. and attending to and a care for. And if anything, may we please do a bit more of that when this pandemic is over. So um, during the snowstorm in uh, Memphis, uh, 
Church Health was open uh, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, we only saw two or three patients every day, but I had always felt no matter what, if, um, if it were possible for us to open the doors, we, we should um, do that because you never know when people are, are, are desperate. And so on the worst day of the week, um, there were two people who came to us. One was a 74-year-old woman and then an 81-year-old man. Um, it allowed me to actually spend a lot more time with him than I normally would. And uh, dealing with his medical problems, which were actually fairly complicated, uh, you know, who else would come out when you're 81 years old, the doctor on a day like that? But gave me the chance to really spend a lot more time just talking about life. And he had lived in Memphis his whole life. And um, and then just both of us sort of setting aside that I was the doctor, he was the patient, you know, whatever a thousand differences in our lives, but just to be able to, to, to talk about life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things that when I'm wearing my doctor hat, I don't get to do very often because I'm always focused on, am I making the right decision? Am I writing the right prescription? Um, and what I felt like we were doing is finding ways to, for both of us to set aside our biases. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, bias has become a powerful thing in our culture, in our communities, and, and in our lives. And so, um, Brian Clarin, uh, sort of a well-known sort of theologian pastor, um, has written what I think is a very useful, uh, uh, helpful uh, understanding of bias, where he actually identifies 13 different ways that bias can uh, impact the way we see the world. Um, You know, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I think to get the point, so you know, there's a confirmation bias where, um, you know, we, we judge all new ideas based on how well they fit into what we already believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it fits into what we believe, by God, we're for it. And if it doesn't, then it must be bad. Um, the complexity bias where our brains just prefer a simple falsehood than a complex mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. You know, we, we struggle with complex truths. You know, it's easier just to say this is wrong. You know, there, there's a community bias. You know, it's almost impossible to see what our community doesn't, can't, or won't see. Um, a complementary bias that, you know, if you're hostile to my ideas, I'll be hostile to yours. And if you're curious and respectful toward my ideas, I'll respond in kind. You know, as long as anybody wants to agree with me, man, Bring it on. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to get to know you better. Yeah. But anyway, he, he goes on through, a, a, through 13 of these, all of which are things that I see myself in at every turn. Um, and a challenge that we have, particularly now and in, in an opportunity, is for us to, to try to figure out how, how are we not going to let bias tear us apart? You know, how can we identify those biases? Um, you know, how can it help us um, find a way out of what may seem like a dead end at times? Um, you know, how can I let go of that? And how can I move beyond that? You know, we need to find ways to commit ourselves to that. 
uh, since we're at the tail end of Black History Month, which as far as I'm concerned, we should do that all year, uh, we're going to do a little, uh, a little hog at it. Google needs your help. Welcome again to The Mystic. I'm Kirk Whalem. 
as you noticed, um, we tend to want to to get more, squeeze more into that uh, that podcast time. So um, we're glad that you're following the podcast, and uh, we're excited to be doing it. How about uh, a little extra material, a little bonus material? This is sort of our after conversation. Uh, for those of you who may feel like us and like, oh, geez, they weren't even done or, or you weren't even done. Uh, here's, here's just a little bit more. Uh, beginning with my sister, Joy Marseille, um, with some thoughts uh, that resonated deeply with me. I feel like that ties a lot into generational differences. Too. I feel like I'm seeing, like, I, I know what people in my demographic, age, race, gender, are saying right now mm-hmm. and it I think would be so different like in response to all this like I think there are lots of people I know who would say the second the pandemic started we should have closed all businesses and everything everybody gets a check and we move through like that obviously there's pros and cons to it mm-hmm. there's effects long-term effects all of that that can be really detrimental for the country right um, and then there are folks that are almost in the exact opposite. It's like, just let who's going to die, die. I mean, like, I've literally heard that comment. You know, like, if people are going to die, they're going to die. Just let it happen. And so it's it's just interesting to see, I mean, what I'm walking away from after this is, like, so much less hope, but weirdly more, um, like, I have lost faith, I think, a while ago, but, like, I'm... Even more so certain that I like don't, and this isn't even in a fear thing. Like it's more just like safety. <laughs> like I don't want to put my trust in people or institutions or things that could fail me, mm-hmm. right? But I don't, and so my response to like a pandemic as like. I mean, like, glo- like larger than just me, but, like, my response as a black woman in her late 20s, black mother in her late 20s, I think it's very different than what I'm hearing from other folks of dem- different demographics and different times and different um, genders. And even even the difference between me and my husband, mm-hmm. when we're in the same season of life, both about to become parents, both on the kind of cusp of, like, professional whatever. And, like, our response even from this has been surprisingly different (laughs) and so I think it's just it's just been really interesting to see all of this and then to see you know kind of what you talked about Joshua that like like folks are like I don't want to go back to this normal again like I don't want to do this folks are talking about we just have four day weeks and uh you know it's unreasonable to have this many hours of work and all these different things and so it's just it's just the lack of trust I have and the lack of like hope I have in that area is strangely met with like an overwhelming amount of hope because it feels as close as to blank slate as we could have gotten so far. Mm. Like I think things are going to get, I personally think things are going to get worse, not just the pandemic, but just like in life in general in this country. Cause, um, I don't know, you can't, um, you can't build this fast without something going askew. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. And so, that's my general thought process, but that actually is like a comforting thought because it's an equalizer, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I know we often talk about how this group was intentionally designed to be interfaith, 
interracial, intergenerational. One thing I've, I've learned from living in this city for 30 years, and I'm, I could be wrong, is, is that it's not as generational as people think, even though we don't understand each other's generations fully. Mm. I think it's situational. So, like, I was watching the Golden Globes, you know, where this great actor, many people have seen on This Is Us, African-American, you know, talked about how it's um, it's good to be back at the Golden Globes, good to be black at the Golden Globes, because they had no uh, judges who were, who were African-American. And yeah. then uh, another winner, she's with her wife in her pajamas accepting the award. So there you have a, a, a LGBTQ, you know, plus couple. I'm convinced more and more related to your work, Scott, to hear that it's economic. So much of this is about investing in equality, mm-hmm. whether it's equal health care, equal. So when you talk about like the work week, you know, the pushback is like, well, then how do you survive or like uh, how, how do we make it? Um, we got to find a way to make it with child care and working. Yeah, it's all true. So. You know, what gives me hope is that if we all come together and get away from the greed and the meism of America, and that's what I was hoping this pandemic would do more of, but in so the race way. and in the chasm, as I was saying, between the habits. So, so maybe Memphis could be a place where it's harder to escape from that, you know? Like when I lived in L.A., there were like 92 suburbs in search of a city, you know, where you live in Westchester, you're removed from the inner city. Whether you're black or white or gay or young or older. So that's what worries me and also gives me hope that if we could just address that head on, that we have to invest in equality. However, we can do it creatively, business, public, healthcare. Um, that's the problem with our city. I mean, we may be the most charitable city in America, but we got the third poor zip code in America, right? right. <laughs> so, so that's why, like, I, whenever I hear this, I learn from you, Joy, and, and Joshua especially, um, because I'm over 50. But to me, a lot of it comes back to that disparity, you know, that yeah. health disparities are related to income, mm-hmm. school disparities are related to income and property taxes, I mean, you Yale guys, I uh, I was jogging in Greenwich and I thought I was passing by Yale at my friend's <laughs> house and it was Greenwich High School. It's a high school. Right. That so it's not even right. public or private school. It's just who has enough and who doesn't, right? And what's enough? So, what, I mean, so that, that that's my take. Is What gives me hope is I, I think the city wants to come together more. Just doesn't know how. I mean, one thing I learned when I got to Memphis and I mean it's true in many cities it's true in New York that you'll have extreme uh, polar ends of the income spectrum living blocks from each other right before I got here I interned at a church on Park Avenue but if you walk five blocks up the New York City public housing starts and the youth there that I worked with had no clue what it looked like to not go to the private school not have um just know where the next meal was coming from when mm-hmm. we took them to volunteer at the pantry. It just didn't click for them. Wow. The difference between New York and Memphis, in my estimation, is that New York 
is formed in such a way that you are driven um, day in and day out not to notice it. In Memphis, I don't think we have that luxury. And a certain part of Memphis has to do the work of opening their eyes to realize that a block north, one block north of Central Avenue, right, or or once you hit Lamar, right, like there's, a, or Crosstown, if you go back toward uh, up North Watkins on a Jackson Avenue, mm-hmm. right, there are, the folks that we're talking about are right there. Mm-hmm. And this failure to realize when we've been a year into social distancing and having to recognize how close we are to other people coming out of this not being able to realize just how close we are and our mutual responsibility to one another then (laughs) what a what a waste of energy time and prayers that we've we've undergone during this pandemic yeah i mean i think on that point alone i mean there's a lot of effort and planning that's gone on in this last year over that very issue you just talked about. You know, the challenge has been we literally could not be face-to-face with each other over it, but I'm absolutely hopeful and optimistic about what happens moving forward once we can actually, you know, interact with people, um, which I think will be sooner rather than later. Was the fact that what has been made clear to me in this in this epoch is that that thing that you mentioned, you know, Rabbi, where you would just assume that the horizontal, you know, end game outcome, desired outcome is equality. That's the thing that we, it's just hard not to assume that. Oh, well, yeah, sure, everybody would want that, right? Everybody does not want that. Yeah. <laughs> that is so painfully yeah. obvious to us right now. <laughs> I think that was that was the the heart of my. That's the heart of my concern. Is not the right word, but like we're not all working for the same. Yeah, thing. Like, I don't know if we're all trying to go the same direction because I do think there are lots of people who are. And then I mean, figuring out how to get there. You know, even if you are going the same direction, it's hard enough. But I think there are a lot of people. I think there's a. Then there's an assumption that. That we're we just have to fix the road when it was very intentionally built this way, <laughs> and so it's hard to. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm I'm here for it, and I want to see it different. But I think that's what relaxes me about everything toppling down. Is it's like, well, you can't. You know, a phoenix can only rise from the ashes. You know, like. You know. You've been listening to the post mystic musings. <laughs> post mystic musings, I like that. Post mystic musings, indeed. Well, we're glad to have had you on board. We'll catch you on the next one, uh, the next episode of Into the Mystic. <laughs>